0: The Window on the World, an international press review by the European Democratic Party, bringing you weekly news and commentaries that matter. Welcome to the 12th episode of the second season of The Window on the World. Today is Friday, November 11th, and in this podcast we will hear the best editorials from around the world on the COP27 meeting on climate change, Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter, and the outcome of the U.S. midterm elections. Let's get started. The first topic this week is climate change and the COP27, which is being held these days in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. The COP is the United Nations Climate Change Conference attended by more than 90 heads of state and about 190 representatives from around the world. The summit has been held annually since 1995. Oh. We'll begin with the article by Neves Rey, columnist for the Spanish newspaper El Diario. We have no more excuses is the title that clearly indicates the theme at the heart of her article. The consequences of climate change are not a risk, but a reality that is unfortunately part of our daily lives, the journalist explains. Extreme weather events such as floods, drought, heat waves and wildfires are indeed becoming more and more frequent. Moreover, climate change is a threat with consequences that go far beyond rising temperatures. It affects food scarcity, depletion of resources such as water and forced migration, in short, on health and human life. Moreover, it is the poorest countries that is, those that pollute the least, and with the least means to combat them that suffer the worst effects of the impact of human activities on the ecosystem. In this sense, COP27 is an opportunity to rethink our development model and change the way we produce and consume. This change will have to involve everyone, governments, businesses, and individual citizens. We cannot wait until the next cop to do something, Ray concludes, because we have run out of excuses. The good news is that in our gestures, in our attitude, there is also a good part of the solution. COP27 is an opportunity to put in place measures to combat climate change. But what will we witness this time in Sharm el-Sheikh? Wonders Xavier Ducarme, a journalist for the Belgian newspaper La Libre. Will it again be a summit made up of broken promises, or will we witness a real breakthrough, a real progress that restores some hope? Today, more than ever, the question of financial means will be at the heart of the discussions, explains Dukarme, according to whom, without climate justice, There is no salvation. As mentioned earlier, it is the least polluting third-world countries that suffer the most severe consequences of emissions from developed countries, a fact that the governments of developed countries have long known. In fact, the columnist writes, In 2009, developed countries pledged to collectively make available to poorer countries $100 billion a year to help them adapt to the impacts of global warming and to pursue their own low-carbon development, a promise reiterated last year in Glasgow but never kept. Funds dispersed have always been less than promised. It is therefore crucial to reach agreement on the financing of climate policies and on the distribution of remedial funds to the countries most affected by the effects of climate change. Without this, the feeling of inequality and profound injustice will pollute all discussions and erode all ambitions. Financial measures in favor of less industrial countries is also the focus of the latest editorial on the subject, published by the British newspaper The Times. The Anglo-Saxon editorial puts in order some data on the damage of climate change. Since June this year, floods in Pakistan have claimed some 1,700 lives and damage estimated at dollars. According to another figure cited in the editorial, it is estimated that the cost of damage to the 55 most vulnerable countries could reach $585 billion a year by 2030. It is therefore not surprising to see the demand from the most affected states that the richest countries, the biggest polluters, should pay the reparations for these damages. However, reparations in the form of a global fund to compensate poorer countries is not the way forward, the British editors argue. How would the countries eligible for the reparations fund be decided? Who would guarantee that this money would actually go to those who have suffered damages rather than ending up in state budgets or in the pockets of local elites? Moreover, the distribution of these funds would be subject to the geopolitical interests of the countries contributing to the fund itself. Perhaps then, the editorial concludes, the success or otherwise of this COP27 should be judged on the basis of one criterion only, reaching a workable agreement, free from the limitations listed above, on how to economically help the most vulnerable countries. The second topic of today's episode is Elon Musk's purchase of the social network Twitter. In the list compiled annually by Forbes, a well-known magazine that deals with the business world, Musk emerges as the richest man in the world in 2022. The proposal to buy the social network had been launched by Musk himself last April. After several events, including Musk's own withdrawal of the offer, the South African billionaire retraced his steps and last October 27th, Musk officially became the new CEO of Twitter. The editorial from which we will start to address this topic is by Martha Peirano, a columnist for the Spanish newspaper El País. In her article, Peirano asks... What are the deeper motivations behind Elon Musk's decision to buy Twitter? By Elon Musk. The Spanish journalist compares the purchase of the social network to the purchase of the Washington Post by Jeff Bezos, the multi-billionaire who heads Amazon. This marks the beginning of a phase in which the main beneficiaries of the golden age are reinvesting in the infrastructure of our public intelligence, wrote John Cassidy, in The New Yorker, in reference to other information tycoons such as William Randolph Hearst and Rupert Murdoch. According to Perrano-Bezos, purchase of The Washington Post did not affect its integrity, but rather lifted it out of the difficult economic situation that the paper was in. Just as The Washington Post was at the time, Twitter is also struggling financially. It is the smallest of the large social networks But in its own way, it is one that most directs public debate, as it is the preferred platform of public figures. As soon as he took office as CEO, Musk immediately began tweaking Twitter's subscription model dreading the possibility of charging $8 a month to have the blue checkmark of verified profile, which guarantees greater visibility on the platform. According to Musk, Twitter has untapped potential. Perhaps the columnist concludes, Musk's real goal is to integrate Twitter with a whole other set of services, some of them provided by companies that he himself founded, such as PayPal internet shopping, and being able to receive and make calls and take advantage of other services from anywhere without paying for transactions or currency exchange. Instead, the next opinion piece on the subject takes us to the center of Europe and to Germany in the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, better known by its acronym FAZ. Journalist Michael Hanfeld addresses another aspect of the issue. According to Hanfeld, Elon Musk does not have an industrial plan for Twitter, but perhaps a political one. While Musk says he wants to protect freedom of expression, he is proposing to pay $8 a month in exchange for the blue check mark and thus greater visibility. If you do not pay the $8 monthly, you are more subject to the so-called shadow ban, a form of censorship by the social which obscures your tweets and content on the social. Also not insignificant is Musk's own invitation to former President Donald Trump to resubscribe to Twitter after his account was deleted following the riot on Capitol Hill, encouraged by Trump himself. Trump's is not the only case. According to the NGO collective Disinformation Situation Center, Scott Ritter, a Putin apologist and former U.S. military officer who blames the Russian military's war crimes in Ukraine on Ukrainians and the United States, was able to briefly return to Twitter before his account was blocked again. Musk poses as the herald of freedom of expression, but this often translates into the freedom to spread lies hate speech, and propaganda whose only goal is to destroy democratic debate. Twitter needs a cool, smart, and democratic head at the top, Hanfeld concludes. Giving space instead to those who have already attempted a coup, as Trump did, has nothing to do with freedom of expression and democratic rules. We'll conclude the second part of the editorial and move to Belgium to the Le Soir newspaper. According to writer and columnist Alain Berenboom, the desire to want to offer a new nuance to the reality that Musk proposes clashes with the function of Twitter itself. Since messages are limited to 280 characters, one cannot go much further on Twitter to read Nuance or reflection or development of thought, the columnist explains. Perhaps Musk, if he really wanted to pitch himself as a promoter of new ideas, would have been better off buying a publishing house. But the turnover of Penguin Books, the leading publisher in the United States, is only $1.5 billion, a far too low price for Musk. But more than a publisher, Musk seems interested in wanting to promote, through his newly owned social network, authors that no one else wants. For example, Donald Trump, who we have already discussed, but also delusional conspiracy evangelists and other dangerous forms of paranoia from around the world, who could find a renewed space for expression and dissemination on Twitter. But this is not an issue strictly related to the South African billionaire's idea of social the columnist concludes. Rather, it gives a somewhat troubling idea of what readers and voters are looking for today. We now move outside of Europe and go to the United States for the last part of today's installment. Indeed, this week saw the midterm elections in the North American country. Midterm elections, which are always held two years after the election of a new president, are used to entirely renew the lower house, the House of Representatives, and part of the upper house, the Senate. The number of deputies assigned to the lower house depends on the population of each state. While in the case of the Senate, each state elects a single representative, regardless of the number of inhabitants. Today's first article, could only come from a European country that, although geographically far from the United States, is symbolically very close to the North American state, both for historical and geopolitical reasons. We are talking about France and the newspaper Le Figaro. Columnist Oliver Piton provides a generational reading of the vote. These election sanctions, first of all, the passing of the baton from one generation to another, both in the case of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Among the ranks of the Democrats in California, Maxwell Alejandro Frost, born in 1997, was elected to the House. In Massachusetts, however, Mara Healey, the first openly homosexual woman to sit in Congress, was elected. The same can be said of Republicans. Indeed, Sarah Huckabee and Katie Britt became the first female governors of their states, Arkansas and Alabama, respectively. If we look instead at individual state governors, Wes Moore became the third black governor in U.S. history, but also the first black in the state of Maryland. Continuing in the same vein of generational renewal, one cannot consider the influence of former President Donald Trump. Who has supported several Republican Party candidacies, even with the view to his possible reapplication. The article, continuing along the line of generational change, defined in the opening, points out that many of the candidates who were supported by Trump were defeated, especially in key states. And a Republican rival for Trump also seems to be shaping up, Ron DeSantis. DeSantis did indeed win in Florida and he is only 44 years old, compared to the former president's 76. And now stands as Donald Trump's great rival. The second editorial on the subject of the U.S. midterm elections takes us instead to an English-speaking country, the United Kingdom, and to The Guardian newspaper, from Matthew, Iglesias. The US Congressional elections still present many unknowns, including the crucial question of who will retain a majority in the Senate. As much as several ballots are still to be held, it is already clear that there has not been a Republican victory across the board, as many had predicted. Usually the incumbent President's party comes in penalized in midterm elections. The result of the vote shows that it went the same way again this time, but to a considerably lesser extent than in other past midterm elections. In this case, it seems to have paid off for the Democrats to have emphasized their pro-abortion policies. Access to abortion has, in fact, been guaranteed at the federal level by the landmark 1973 Supreme Court ruling. That ruling, however, was overturned last June, leaving free choice to individual states, some of which decided to restrict access to pregnancy termination. According to Iglesias, this would have, ironically, also resulted in Ron DeSantis's victory in the state of Florida. DeSantis, despite being a strong supporter of conservatism in general, On the issue of pregnancy termination, he argues, a ban from 15 weeks onward, thus leaving abortion applicable in about 95% of cases. Ultimately, for the British columnist, the result is a testament to the tactical skill the US Democratic Party has deployed. The final opinion today comes from the very country directly affected by the vote, the United States. New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg also believes that overturning access to abortion rights played a key role in this election. When it comes to reproductive choice, Republicans are out of touch with the values of a significant portion of the electorate, says the journalist, also speaking about the Republican electorate. This is another reason that could explain the poor Republican result in general, but it also relates to Republican Ron DeSantis' positive result in Florida. From the standpoint of reproductive rights, DeSantis has been more tolerant compared to many other candidates in his own party. Extremism is the biggest political story in the country, Goldberg says, judging the increasing Extreme position of Republicans, especially on civil rights. This, to conclude, would also alienate many voters who would usually vote for the Republican Party the acolytes of Make America Great Again, and those trapped in a bubble convinced by Fox News, right-wing radio, social media, and their own sense of entitlement that they are the only authentic tribunes of the American people. In short, according to the American journalist, the tendency of Republican extremists to consider themselves the sole repositories of the will of the people with their extreme positions would have driven even the most moderate Republican voters away from the ballot box. People just want the circus to stop. And that brings us to the end of the 12th episode of the second season of The Window on the World. Thank you again for following us and we look forward to seeing you next Friday again with the best editorials from Europe and the rest of the world. This week's editorial work was edited by Daniel Rutza and other microphone. It's me, Gail Rago. See you next week.